This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Summer 2018 Season, Episode 4. Today we are taking our first look at Puranito Uizu, which I will henceforth call Planet With to keep my butchered pronunciation to a minimum. Today's video will contain spoilers from the first four episodes of this series. There are two concepts I want to look at in today's video. One is the idea of sealing, and the other is the idea of avenging. These two concepts are portrayed as extremes that our main trio of characters are hoping to avoid. For either case, overcoming the danger requires one to resolve inner turmoil, regret, or insecurity to face the version of yourself you see reflected in the mirror and either accept or overcome. So we will first look at the idea of sealing and what it may mean, and the way in which characters have prevailed or failed against it. Next we'll examine how this idea of facing your inner self is represented visually by reflection. Then we'll look at the idea of avenging and how it has an expanded meaning for the series and consider the threat that it presents to our main cast. The core macro-level conflict is presented to us as a disagreement in philosophy between two factions of something called Nebula, which seems most like some kind of intergalactic United Nations. Both factions want to prevent Earth from destroying itself due to what they call the evolution of power, but they have different ideas about pursuing this end. On one side are the pacifists, represented in our anime by Ginkgo and the cat-like sensei, the two who watch over our protagonist, Soya. They hope that humanity will choose the evolution of love, and are trying to steal the power that humanity has begun using, the power of the dragon. The other side is the sealing faction, represented by this dog guy, and possibly by his attendant. They are not willing to wait for humanity to find the evolution of love now that they've begun using the power of the dragon. They intend to seal humanity, which apparently will stop all evolution, and they find this a preferable fate to allowing humanity to destroy itself. Now, what does it mean to seal humanity? Well, one of two things is happening in this anime. Either we are seeing the way that the sealing faction usually goes about its business with the giant floating things, the nebula weapons, and they are the ones that do the sealing. Or the sealing plan entails something else, and the floating things are either a means to this end or are a red herring. Which one it is depends on whether or not there is treachery afoot. This question pivots on the loyalty of one person, Shiraishi. Shiraishi acts as a type of secretary and advisor to the organization Grand Paladin, and gives all the strategic information necessary for them to fight the nebula weapons that belong to the sealing faction. However, she seems to originate with this very sealing faction. She is the one in the background of the meeting between the two representatives in Soya's dream, and she is also paired with the same factional representative in the ending credit sequence. 
Benica even calls this out when she questions why Shiraishi knows so much about the enemy weapons uh, in episode 3. So that means that either Shiraishi is a traitor to the faction and is aiding humanity both by fighting off the weapons and by supporting the director's use of the dragon's power, or it means that having humanity use the dragon's power is actually part of the sealing faction's plan, and Shiraishi is an agent pursuing this goal, I guess as a kind of false flag operation to justify using some more extreme method. Either way, the presence of a sealing faction member among Grand Paladin is something she would want to keep hidden from the pacifist faction. This means that whether the sealing faction is complicit or not, some external demonstration of their attempts to seal humanity needs to exist. That external demonstration seems to be the function of the nebula weapons, and so with the information we have now, we will consider this to be the danger of being sealed. We can tell from Ginkgo's reactions to the Nebula weapons that she thinks they're cute, which probably means that Nebula at large thinks they're cute and expects humans to find them endearing as well. They aren't the way they are just because, haha, anime, you're so random. Uh, instead, the fact that they are bizarre abominations to us instead of appealing, like Nebula believes, tells us that Nebula does not understand humanity. They are trying to be pleasing and disarming, but misunderstand just enough to get it horribly, hilariously wrong. This might even be what is going on with the P's kanji on the front of the first one we see. Taki Akahabara will later even note on her board that it might be meant to be peace, and they simply got the wrong word, an intergalactic Google Translate mishap. They will repeat this by spelling smile with a five and a one on the pig weapon. We don't get to see the front of all the other versions of the P's weapon, uh, they might have words as well, but in the language of whichever country they were approaching at the time. Take these assumptions together, and the weapons apparently should work like this. They create these things which they think will look cute and endearing to the people of Earth. They label them to let humanity know that they come in peace. Then they simultaneously approach major population centers all over the world. Their intention is to fire the giant sphere of light that we saw in episode 1 and affect every person in these cities. Doing so will hopefully seal humanity by giving them what they want, taking away their desire to struggle. They stop fighting and striving, they stop evolving. This seems supported by the experiences of the Grand Paladin members who get inside the weapons, and so we'll discuss how they fared against the sealing threat. Inside the cores, the Paladin members are given some version of what they really want, or something they want to correct. This matches the experience of the fighter pilot who was caught in the Sphere of Light, showing him some scenario involving his family. This erodes his will to fight, or at least changes his priorities, and he abandons his mission of destroying the weapon. Torai gets to save his mother from a fire in his youth, a desire he held so strongly that he became a firefighter, and then later joined the Paladin group. He is forever saving others to make up for not being able to save his mother. Miu wanted to be strong, and for her, this strength was epitomized by Haru's prowess at Judo. We will later see that she took up Judo, but was not as proficient as Haru. For her, defeating Haru herself would be a perfect encapsulation of becoming strong. Haru, by contrast, doesn't like her own strength. Rather, she is both drawn to and envious of Miu's femininity, of being small and cute and princess-like. Thus, in her dream vision, she gets to be the one who is demure and done up, and the Miu she admires plays the role of prince. She doesn't want to be big and strong and scary. 
When each of them shakes loose of this illusion and goes to destroy it, there is a moment just before impact where they are visually represented as shattering themselves, and this moment is accompanied by a message that speaks to their individual fears or insecurities. Todai forgives himself, Miu assures herself that it's okay to be weak, and Haru even tells herself that no one is afraid of her. Each of these images is a reflection. They are looking at themselves. Haru's is even literally in a mirror. But each of them is represented not as an accurate reflection of who they are in the present, but as themselves in a situation that they wish for. Todai back to being his younger self, Miu is dressed as a martial artist, and Haru is dressed as a princess. Judgment does not fare so well. His illusion puts him at the center of his fantasies. He's like some amalgamation of self-insert, wish-fulfillment protagonists, and rather than destroy this illusion, he embraces it. This seems to pacify him entirely. He is shown to be having a pleasant dream that he doesn't wake from, and is still asleep by the end of the fourth episode. It might be that this is the ceiling referred to. Giving humanity what they want strips them of being able to fight, or, well, do much of anything. Judgment does not face and defeat his reflection. Now, the ending credit sequence plays with this idea of reflection, and portrays our characters as being in conflict with their interior and exterior selves. Each person that shows up in the mask reflection appears to have some discrepancy between the self they project to others and the self that is inside, and the side-by-side -side comparison is meant to highlight this discrepancy. For our paladins, Miu looks strong and confident in her outside self, yet is feeling weak and vulnerable in her reflection. Torai is very similar. Haru is the opposite. She tries to project weakness because her real self is strong and aggressive. Judgment has an image he tries to project, but his reflection shows that he really wants adulation and indulgence. Now, these are the ones for whom we've seen their illusions, and they all match up. Therefore, we can assume that the others would have a similar contrast between their interior and exterior selves. While Benica appears to have a similar pattern to Miu and Torai, projecting strength to hide some inner weakness or pain, the remaining members seem a different situation. Yosuke projects an air of uncertainty and even anxiety, but his reflection self seems calm and stoic, and the glasses going opaque is often used in anime to indicate someone doing something ruthlessly practical or even sociopathic. Eyes are the biggest source of emoting for animation, so blanking them out is often visual shorthand for showing someone as emotionless in that moment. Likewise with the old guy, who projects a type of elderly fragility and a silly obsession with eating meat. However, his reflected self is a fighter, showing no signs of fragility or timidity. I would be wary about these two. As to the others, Ginko is not as happy in her reflection as the person that she projects most of the time. Shiraishi appears more carefree than the professional stoicism that she usually projects. However, our two faction representatives are unreadable, and while the director appears in the background of Takizo's exterior self, he does not show up in the reflection. Curious. Notably, Tanabata Gara is the only person who is not part of this pattern. Perhaps, then, she is the one person who is the same inside and outside. The rest of the group that we have seen so far are haunted by something in their past, or some version of their life is different than what they wanted. But we learn in Episode 3 that Tamaragawara is someone who likes ghost stories. That is, ghosts of the past do not haunt her, but rather she finds them intriguing. I feel like she might have a bigger role in the events to come than is suggested by her presence so far. 
there is potentially another tie-in with the animal representation of the psychokinetic mega-god photon armor thingies. Most of them match animals in the Chinese zodiac, and while exploring that idea we'll have to wait for another day, you should know that in Chinese astrology, the year that you were born in gives you an animal that represents your external self or the self that you are perceived as. However, everyone also has an animal for the month, day, and hour, and these are perceived as your inner self, true self, and secret self, respectively. Thus, the external representations, just like the transformations of Grand Paladin, often are different from your inner or true or secret self. That is, you are probably a different animal than the one people see. Now, near as I can tell from what we know so far, defeating or accepting your inner self, metaphorically, means escaping from the ceiling. That ceiling is one danger that the Grand Paladin members face, going too far to the side of passivity. There is another danger, which is going too far to the side of aggression, too close to the dragon. This danger seems to be linked to the idea of avenging, and that concept has been played with a little bit in the anime so far, even expanded past the normal idea of avenging someone's death. This is even lampshaded by Haru when Miu talks about avenging Torai, and she reminds us that Torai is not actually dead. This expanded notion of avenging comes up several other times. Haru talks about avenging Miu's loss in the judo tournament, with Miu pointing out that they are in different divisions, so the loss can't really be avenged. She thinks of it this way anyway using Miu's defeat and encouragement as motivation in her fight to avenge her. Haru will later become obsessed with avenging Miu's loss to Soya, literally saying, I'll avenge your lost smile. Avenging, then, is being conflated with creating a change in the world, of righting a perceived wrong or injustice. This is even on display in the illusions inside the cores, where the various fighters are given an opportunity to avenge something they find regrettable in their past or present. Miu is given opportunity to be strong to avenge feeling weak. Haru is given the opportunity to be feminine and princess-like to avenge feeling strong and scary. Torai is given the opportunity to avenge his inability to save his mother. Judgment is given the opportunity to avenge how unextraordinary his real life is, or I should say, how different it is than the fantasy storylines that he wishes were true. Now, while giving into these illusions would mean being sealed, taking Avenging too far has a different problem. Episodes 3 and 4 were called Avenger 1 and 2, and both are focused on Haru's attempt to avenge Miu's loss to Soya. However, she becomes so single-minded in this purpose that she goes too far, and we no longer have to wonder about the danger of the dragon's power. Even on the small scale, Haru is capable of damaging the nearby city almost effortlessly. It's a mere echo of the planet-destroying power that Soya apparently witnessed back on Sirius, and yet it was ever so simple for her to slip into it. Now, they do not reverse her situation by overpowering her. They reverse it by employing the evolution of love. Miu communicates her intention to go back to try to save Haru by saying that she wants to be strong. This is a different kind of strong than the version of her that simply didn't want to feel weak. They wanted to avenge Torai. It's not avenging. Instead, it is the pacifist faction's answer to the problem of the dragon's power, a middle ground between the two extremes. Miu even indicates to the rest that she and Haru probably won't fight anymore after these events. Quite the change from someone who is mourning her loss of power just one episode prior. But I would say that this expanded idea of avenging is still a major threat. 
Not everyone is going to have a pre-existing and genuine friendship like the one between Haru and Miyu. Looking around the rest of the cast, you'll see that others are on an avenging-like path, and Haru's situation should be treated as a cautionary tale. Soya's is the most obvious, as he means to avenge his planet in a very literal sense. We can already see potential danger in this, as he decides to swallow his concern for Judgment's situation once he decides that he's his enemy. Sensei is also caught up in this. He is involved in the happenings on Earth because of feeling regret or responsibility for what happened on Sirius. He is trying to avenge his failure, whatever that entailed. I suspect we will find out that Ginkgo has something she is trying to make up for as well. If I had to guess, I think it will have something to do with food or caretaking in general, based on her interactions with Soya. This might even be why she adopts a maid uniform. The ceiling faction might also be in a type of avenging of making up for past failures. They would rather seal a race than watch them destroy themselves, which suggests that they have watched races destroy themselves in the past and feel some responsibility for it. Finally, and the one that seems most menacing at the moment, is the director's plan for world conquest. That would seem sinister enough in isolation, sure, but it's his motivation that is worrisome. He is doing it to achieve true peace, and a uniform sense of justice, values, ethics, and morals. That sounds a lot like someone trying to change something fundamental about his situation, right? It doesn't sound like power for its own sake, but more like the drive that Haru was feeling earlier, a type of avenging something in the world that they perceive as wrong or unjust. Little wonder that his psychic armor is dragon-shaped, or that his eyes are dragon-like, or that Soya feels the aura of the dragon most strongly from him. So, these two extremes are the primary threats that I see going forward. The two characters who entered the Nebula weapon together demonstrated to us the possible outcome of straying too far either way, which I'm sure is no coincidence. Give in too much to a fantasy version of the world, and you may never wake up from your dream. Yet strive too hard against the wrongness of the world, and you may instead become a nightmare. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.